Hello, welcome to a special edition of the Oxford Research Group podcast, where we look back at the history of ORG. I'm Alistair Mackay, Senior Editor at Oxford Research Group, and I'll be joined by Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at SaferWorld. In this special series of podcasts, we talk with people involved in the development and evolution of ORG in its early days through to its present. Today, we'll be joined by Gabrielle Rifkind, a senior advisor to the Oxford Research Group's strategic peaceboarding program, which she founded as a Middle East program in 2002. Gabrielle is currently director of the Oxford Process. Today, we'll discuss Gabrielle's impressive career in preventive diplomacy, and in particular, her crucial role in the evolution of ORG's Middle East program. Enjoy the show. Hello. Thank you to Gabrielle Rifkind for joining our next in a series of discussions with the people that founded and developed the Oxford Research Group. So Gabrielle, it would be good to start at the beginning of how your career developed before you engaged with ORG. Well, I'm quite a strange hybrid. I actually come from a psychological background and I'm a group analyst and individual psychotherapist as well. And had probably worked for 20 years in that trade um, before I met Silla Elworthy. And in fact, I'd always had a kind of passion and interest in politics. And the thing that Silla was talking at one of the Oxford colleges, and I was very taken by her style and the fact that she wasn't trying to create a conflictual environment or she actually had the Russians and the Chinese there and she wasn't trying to polarise things or lock people into corners. And I thought, this is quite unusual. So I actually went up to her and said, this is the closest I've ever seen to putting together psychology and politics or human behaviour and geopolitics and trying to understand why and how people behave in particular ways. And I think within about 24 hours, I received her book, she sent it me, and and that just became the beginning of a conversation that developed into a very deep working relationship. I think the the psychotherapy background is is very interesting as well. Um, How how do you feel that feeds into your approach to conflict resolution? And does it give you a sort of lens that is not necessarily always utilised as much as it should be in conflict analysis? Well, I think that is my passion. Having worked in uh, the Middle East for almost two decades, and you see the absolute inability to resolve conflict there, um, it seemed to me that whether you're talking about the Palestine-Israel conflict or you're talking about the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia, so much of it is about relationships and relationships that have gone wrong. And it isn't just about geopolitics, which is about power. It's actually about how do you create the environment in which people don't necessarily trust each other. That would probably be a step too far, but certainly understand each other's minds and what's going on. And how far can that actually shift the dynamic, the, 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 the geopolitics? And I certainly know on the Palestine-Israel conflict that there have been opportunities, there have been moments in the peace process. I mean, someone like Kerry was actually extremely serious 
and we were working in parallel with the Palestinians at the time. But I think they felt very marginalized, disempowered, not necessarily even because Kerry was doing that, but the whole kind of history of their experience made them perhaps have a, um, some very powerful emotions, which was much less about feeling that they could take, take control and have some influence of what happened. The whole kind of psychology was deeply influential in terms of what was possible. When you say it like that, it sounds like the transition from a psychology background into a conflict resolution background was very seamless. But I'm interested to, to, to unpick what your engagement with ORG looked like at first and how you made that transition between the two. Yes, yeah, it's interesting you describe it as seamless. I think I came in probably with a great deal of innocence and naivety, which is my, was my greatest strength at the time, because I thought there's nothing that we c- can't do. And I remember it was the height of the second intifada. And I went for a walk with Scylla and she said, how was your holiday? And I said, I was completely consumed by what was going on Palestine, Israel. And she said, well, what are you going to do? And you only need to say to me, what are you going to do? And I think, well, I, I better do something. And in fact, that was the very first thing I did around our dining room table. I convened, I'm very lucky to have a very large dining room table. We convened 16 people who in some way were concerned and troubled by the, the second intifada. And that was the suicide bombing campaign where in my heart, I just knew things were getting so terrible that the, the possibilities of peace were coming more distant. And round this table, we had senior political figures, we had journalists, we had Palestinians, we had Israelis. And this was done as a, I suppose, with my group analyst hat on, but with an act of, well, I have to do something. And actually, out of that meeting, um, we actually decided to do some work on creating a document on uh, the idea of an international protectorate for the, for the Palestinians on the West Bank and Gaza. But why that made sense to me immediately was this idea that actually to resolve conflict, people need protecting, they need nurturing, they need looking after sufficiently to be in a state of readiness to make a peace deal. And in fact, this was about, this was really the height of the Second Intifada. And we somehow got it on Tony Blair's desk immediately and had about six meetings in government uh, and this was this was this was a mixture of you know now I'm sort of more cautious and more careful how I do things but you know ignorance and innocence can be a wonderful thing in terms of thinking uh, of ambition I, I've always said of us we're we're both very modest and extremely ambitious we're modest, we're humble, we've got very small resources. But, you know, if you're going to try and do something, let's try and have some impact. Definitely. And I love the, the recommendation of be both ambitious and innocent. <laughs> yeah. um, but on the, on the, one of the things you're talking about um, with ORG was your work with Scylla. And I think also what is very interesting about ORG that we've discovered is it's not simply offering critique of issues, which is, is a common staple of think tanks, but it's also ways of thinking of different ways of approaching mm. issues. And in the mid-noughties, um, if that's the official term now, I think 2000s, uh, you wrote a very interesting work with Silla Elworthy, which was looking at the war on terror. 
And the reason why I think it's very interesting is, is because it didn't, as I said before, not just offer critique, it offered a different way of looking at things and alternatives to the war on terror. I was wondering if you just talk a little bit about what those alternatives were and sort of how you, how you came about that reasoning. Yeah, I suppose it, it had to have been influenced by my psychological background, which says, in the end, everybody's human. However terrible things are that people do, and sometimes it is terrible, especially when people die, underneath there's an ordinary human being, a human being who actually wasn't particularly born evil. It, it's life events that make it, that turn us, turn some groups to violence, and an absolute passionate belief that we have to understand the root causes uh, of why people behave like this. And it's all, all often very complex geopolitics and years of war and years of feeling the consequences of war, of people dying in your family, feeling utterly powerless and, and then turning to violence to protect yourself. And, and I think my own belief and shared with Scylla was often the Western way of intervention intervening particularly militarily was actually the cause of many of the conflicts and was not solving them but was setting i mean look how many people have critiqued it now but we certainly wrote about it and talked about it at the uh the iraq war how that set off the absolute chaos in the middle east and then now just move into to your role in founding the middle east program at the Oxford Research Group, which later became the Strategic Peace Building Programme and worked to build dialogue in some of the world's most complex conflicts. Can you describe some of the work that you did, which was incredibly impressive, and maybe talk about some of your proudest moments while running that work? Well, you know, it was challenging and difficult. And sometimes you'd think, I can't believe what doors I've opened or what access I've, I've made, you know, we might have got invited to Riyadh to do a meeting on the possibilities of doing work on the Iran-Saudi relationship, or we did work on the proxy war in Syria. We did a lot of work on the Iranian nuclear issue quietly behind the scenes. This was before there was any possibility of um, talks, and I remember we got, the ex-negotiators asked me if I would create the conditions coming together with uh, nuclear scientists and all the E3 plus three countries well in advance of any formal negotiation because they passionately believed there was a deal to be done. And in fact, one of the things we did was we had a ex, uh, a very senior American ambassador with us who we took to meet um, the Iranian foreign minister at that time. And he went back to the US and talked to various people within government to say, look, I think there is something to talk about. So we were catalytic and played a part in that. You know, I don't want to be too grandiose about it. We weren't the only people who ever did those kind kind of things. But it it was a kind of, I have to say in my work, sometimes I move between thinking, I cannot believe that we've got these people around the table and then doors will slam again and you can step back and think, actually what's going to be possible and they'd open and slam all the time you know you'd have Saudis and the Iranians sitting together saying yes of course we'll carry on in a dialogue and then the Saudis would go silent on you and 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 I think what I know is that and and maybe my psychotherapy background helps me here you throw multiple balls in the air 
and where, where you get breakthrough, I have to say, it's getting even more difficult than it was historically, for, or because we're living in such a complex world. There's so many multiple actors involved. I just want to pick up on, on two things that I found really interesting there, both the, the sort of pendulum swings between having access and not, which is something that we've, we've found throughout the history of Oxford Research Group that sometimes there does seem that openness to engage and then suddenly a door will be closed. But then also how you how you got access on on such small resources that it was just yes knocking yes. on the door and seeing which opened <laughs> i know i know and that was a whole kind of mixture of how it was definitely quite a lot of what richard would call chutzpah cheek uh, <laughs> um just out silly used to always say that of me that you know i would have a sort of who I'd lift the phone up to or, or write maybe a charismatic email or ask someone to open the door to me. You know, it seemed such an important thing to do. You weren't going to be deterred. And then also when you were in certain meetings, so somehow I got myself invited to Iran on a couple of occasions and, and by the Iranian ambassador at, at that point. And there were very small numbers of people going. Uh, you know, I think there were six of us. And when I was there, I met Gianni Pico, um, uh, who I was later to write the book The Fog of Peace with and he'd been a big figure in, in geopolitics in the UN and been involved in negotiating the end of the Iran-Iraq war and you know I was I, I had none of the kind of status that he had but when I met him very quickly I'd got this idea in my head about how we could bring senior Iranians and Israelis together. It never happened, needless to say, but I've always had the, the most profound belief that things would settle in the, in the Middle East if we could do something on the Iran-Israel relationship. And in fact, paradoxically, they have a huge amount in common. They might well be rivals, but long term they are allies when it, when it will happen. Anyhow, I remember saying to Gimmick, just testing out the idea with him, and, you know, I expected him to look at me as if I was mad. And then sort of very quickly, he said, no, I will work with you, Gabriel. I will work with you. And he's then spent the next decade working with me. So I had this big man of geopolitics. So I've always gone for people who know a lot more than me. I think that's one of my bold steps that I take. I feel safe when I do that. But having said that, I think my safety was my psychological background, because he'd been quite traumatised by some of the work he'd done. He'd actually risked his life on 120 occasions. And that, that was with, that sort of led to the collaboration on the, the Fog of Peace, did it? That, that was the first yes. meeting? Yeah, we wrote that together. And, and you know, I, writing books was not something I was particularly familiar with. And in the end, it was me who had to be the primary author, uh, which was a very good training for me. Because um, moving on to the, the Fog of Peace, um, yeah. one of the things that it, it is about, it is, again, about that psychology of warfare. And one of the very interesting things is that it has that kind of central theme of, of empathy and why it's important as part of a, a strand of conflict resolution. But why, why do you think, you have touched on this before, why do you think empathy is so important? And do you think it's something that's lacking from a lot of conflict resolution efforts well, at the moment? Well, you know... <laughs> If you read my later writings, they go, what happens when empathy fails? Uh, because I actually think 
there are some conflicts where it's possible where you can get into the mind of the other and in the end you can establish relationships such that you can make some of the fudgy compromises that required peacemaking and that happened in Northern Ireland but that was because it was a four-year process. When you look at Palestine-Israel and, and in fact my experience there and, and it was reinforced by the work with Oliver Ramsbottom is actually when we put the Palestinians in the same room or put them in parallel rooms because after a while the Palestinians wouldn't sit with the Israelis we found that the gaps got even bigger and 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 the actual possibility of empathy was was not going to happen and this was partly I think it was partly some of the terrible things that, that had happened you know the suicide bombing in Israel meant change people's mindsets forever there the Palestinians felt so disempowered and weakened they had no space for empathy for the Israelis and and I began to think that you know, we need to use our empathy. We as mediators, we as peacemakers, need to engage and have empathy with all, all the parties. Um, but those involved in the conflict um, seldom have the capacity to do so because they have been so traumatised. And that's why I moved, partly influenced by Oliver, to this idea of managing ra- radical differences um, because of the belief that How do you find that people are not going to change their mind and suddenly come to the middle and say, yes, of course, we've got all this common ground. But actually, a peace deal means that you have to establish sufficient around people's self-interest and why it might be in their interest to stop the violence and make a deal. So... I do have carry. I am known in my writing for the for, for the importance of empathy, but it's also paradoxical because it's also when empathy fails. And I also think this belief in the the need to get people round a table um, was important in in all of the work. It it maybe was part of the reason for the Liddite conversations as well. I wonder if you can talk a bit about how that started and and what those conversations looked like. Yes, with pleasure. So the Liddite conversation must have started about 2004, 2005, and it went on for at least a decade. And it was inspired by Paul Rogers' work. Um, To me, what he was saying about understanding the root causes of conflict seemed just so important. And there wasn't a large enough voice for that. So again, I gathered people around our dining room table being very lucky that we've got a big one and we'd have one two three circles and we'd have up to 30 journalists who would come and we might be doing something on Afghanistan or the war in Iraq or the Palestine-Israel conflict and we'd always have Paul's voice but we would have other senior journalists involved around the table and what we were trying to do was permeate into the public space the complexity of conflict and that the and move away from our kind of I would say fundamentalist liberal interpretations around right and wrong and that you had to get into everybody's mind and understand why they were thinking like that and the more we came in with our kind of moral superiority of what was right the often the less effective we were at resolving conflict it's, it's all very interesting because one of the things um that you mention in your book on the, the psychology of political extremism is the idea that both from left and right there is perhaps an insufficient 
attention to these kind of things. Can you maybe sort of flesh out a bit more why you think the debate on political extremism at the moment is not yes, quite Yeah, and, and thank you for going to the trouble to read my books. I appreciate that. Um, I think, I suppose this is my psychological hat on. I think we see the world through our own lens. We don't even know we're doing it. And we find it very hard to get into the mind of the other and why people who think differently to us have any legitimacy in their thought. And I actually think it, it hardens things and creates problems. You know, even if you're talking about Hong Kong, you know, it's it's very, very distressing to see the, the, the Hong Kong's loss of um, one country, two systems, the erosion of it. And maybe it would have happened, whatever. But I think the more hostile we are to China, the more defensive and hardline it becomes. And that we have to be able to understand people's different systems and why people operate differently. And until we can begin to do that, I think we just deepen the the track lines of conflict. And... I think there's a lot of public posturing that actually is antithetical to being able to resolve conflict. And it's many of these drivers, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's many of these drivers that that drives the work of the Oxford process, which you you Mm. run now. I'd love to know more about the the work that you do with them and, and what you think its biggest challenges will be over the next few years yeah well lockdown doesn't help because um our work is so much about building relationships and people trusting us even if they don't trust each other in conflict trusting us to try and create safe spaces and i'm not sure you can really do that on zoom i mean zoom is remarkable you know, we're having a wonderful conversation on Zoom, but um, it, it has its limitations in terms of issues of trust because, you know, it has historically been having people in the same room, taking care of them, looking after them, bringing the right people together, which has been my passion. And we're certainly challenged at, at, at this point. And, and also you see the world becoming more polarised, more extreme, I mean, I think managing radical difference becomes one of the most important things to be doing, whether you're talking about whether Republicans and Democrats can sit in the same space or even what we saw on Brexit in this country, that people not crossing the barricades. But I think you're seeing that globally, internationally, that and that people are very stuck in their own cocoons and seeing the world through their own lens. And until we learn to listen and tolerate other people's points of view and manage the difference, we're actually going to much more extreme po- politics, which is very problematic. Absolutely. Um, there's been a lot of debate recently about this idea of digital peace building, maybe as a, an option. Do, do you think that is a, a potential avenue now, or is it maybe just something that will be a temporary thing before hopefully maybe the world gets back to a semblance of normality? I, I mean... <laughs> I'm not sure I'm the best person to to really answer that because I'm not sure I'm the right generation for that. I'm quite sure that there is a lot to be done. And, you know, we've on Zoom, we have had all kinds of communications, but um, I think there's nothing like people in the flesh and the real relationships. And 
I, I, you know, I'm really interested to know more of what's being done in digital uh, uh, peacemaking and the fact that people aren't traveling is a good thing, but sometimes you have to breathe it and smell it and know it and be with people. And I'm not sure you can quite do that digitally. I'm also interested in asking a bit more about Oxford processes process. <laughs> how we work. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about the behind the scenes work. How yeah. do you think that plays into this? Because like you mentioned that there needs to be a lot of posturing for some of these groups and that seems to add to the polarisation. How effective is the working behind the scenes when you can put to one side the public persona? Well, I, I mean, I don't think one has to one has to deal with the complexity of that that you know what people people have they have their followers they have their people who've supported them they have their constituencies and so they can't agree one thing quietly that they can't sell to their people uh, and so whilst you might create the environment to open up possibilities they have to think about how they take it back home and that's a very very important part part of it but i think what happens in conflict is that so much mistrust builds and people, the antipathy and the anxieties and the fears about the other stops people thinking creatively. So when you can put them in the same space and, and do that for a committed period of time, there is more possibilities that some new ideas can emerge. In terms of our methodology, well, I think a lot of it is about building the relationships and preparing them and bringing to the, to the space in which you take a lot of care and look after them. I think Scylla was very good at that when she, she did it historically. She used to do Chani Manor, which was quite an inspiration for me to have our own retreat, the Oxford process. Um, and passionately believe when you really look after people, um, then people feel they can relax and they can perhaps allow a little more thinking about thinking the unthinkable, the unimaginable. But within that, I think you also have to look at how do you manage the radical differences? How do you, that people are not going to necessarily change their mind. One of the things I often say is what people believe, whether you're talking about in Gaza or in North Korea, has been passed on with your mother's milk and, and how you created your identity. You're not going to give it up lightly. It's, and so you have to start where people are and not where you want them to be. And because how they position themselves is for a whole very complex set of reasons. Because on uh, just touching on North Korea, I understand you actually visited Korea. That was was that twenty sixteen? It was twenty sixteen. Remember no better than me. <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering if you could maybe just. I went to Beijing and then into North Korea. Yes. Yeah. Because I was wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit about that. What your what your experience was. Uh, I mean, was that, that was it. Wasn't as difficult to get in as people imagine. You know. The thing I I was left with is if you were born where I were born, you would think what I do think. And of course, it's it's a very it's an extremely oppressive authoritarian regime. But you also have to ask the question: How do people get to that mindset, and how do you ripen the conditions to, for uh, to, to to open up any kind of dialogue? Because in the end, it's it's going to be the only way. And also to be quite realistic, the work came about because of the work we did on the Iranian nuclear issue. And then we had a Russian in our team who sort of pushed me to think, well, is there anything we can do on North Korea? When I went, I went to sniff it and smell it and experience it and try and see 
if there were possibilities. We, we actually have not done any detailed work. We have not created the world in which we brought people together on North Korea. Um, I, still, I still stay open to it. In fact, the work I'd really enjoy doing is the North and South Koreans, bringing them together, because um, I think there'd be huge possibilities. I also think, especially I hear a lot as I look into the UK's sort of military posturing, I hear a lot about great power competition and I'm increasingly concerned about the antagonism that creates when you immediately create an sort of enemy-centric narrative around another country and ignore the fact that where you're born creates your own narrative and if we can unpick that it seems like your work is especially needed in this time as we create new enemies. I wonder if there's anything you think about these shifting narratives yeah no I think you're completely right um I think the world is becoming more and more polarized and China is being turned into the enemy the rise of China is inevitable and we have to find a way to coexist with it we might not have the same philosophies or uh but we're not going to pull them over to democracy they've got their own history and their anxieties about what that means and we we need a, we do need all kinds of dialogues with them, which is about how how to manage the relationship with different ways of seeing and and and, and the things that we find difficult as well. But it doesn't mean that we can't find a way to coexist with them. Suddenly they become the number one enemy. I'm not sure they're behaving worse than and many many other countries. You could put um, Saudi Arabia in that basket if you wanted to but um, they haven't become our enemy you know that that, that, that we can be uh, of course there's human rights abuse but um, you know look to our own countries our record isn't always so wonderful yeah I think it's going to be one of those things that these kind of challenges will keep emerging in the world and it's really up to organizations like ORG to keep addressing them unfortunately ORG is as we know is sadly closing but from your perspective, what do you think will be the um, the main loss with ORG's closure? What what do you think will be, what kind of sort of gap will it leave in the whole um, NGO sphere in terms of its approach, in terms of what it does? Yeah, I mean, it's constantly challenged the security narrative. Um, the idea that military intervention seldom or never makes the world safer and an passionate belief that resources should be directed away from the military to dealing with some of the underlying causes of conflict. And and still there was a wonderful voice for that. And then it was carried on by so many people in Oxford Research Group. But I think Paul Rogers was a consistent voice going through. And um, in fact, he will continue writing. Everybody will continue writing. I think all of us, it was a home it was inspiring. It, we befriended a community. We worked together, but we sort of will go out in our own ways, carry on doing all the stuff we believe in because that's how that's who we all are. You know, it got deep inside us, you could say. I'm also interested with Oxford Research Group closing, but also with the problems that we've outlined in the conversation today. Whether there's any lessons that you would take from your days at Oxford Research Group and now at the Oxford Process and in what advice you would give to organisations and individuals trying to build peace in today's society? I think I might say be humble and bold 
<laughs> be modest and ambitious. Don't limit your horizons or what you think you can do. Um, even on small resources, I'm an absolute passionate believer that that small resources sometimes means that you're nimble and agile, and that uh, don't become a weighty bureaucracy. Don't become so involved in all the kind of checks and balances that you hardly get anything done. You kind of have to have a, a boldness, a daringness, if you if you want to change the world. I think on on that more sort of optimistic note, I mean, it's probably a good time to, to sort of draw this to an end, although it's one of those conversations I wish could probably go on longer. But before we, we depart, was there anything you wanted to add um, about your work or, or sort of, you know, further thoughts of the future? I think it's, it's been lovely, the conversation. I'm sorry I didn't quite keep to your questions, um, but I think you've probably got what you, what you need somewhere in it. <laughs> I think that was better. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, exactly. Yeah, I know I, I have quite often done podcasts and it's nice when it's sort of free-flowing conversation. Yeah, agreed. Okay, excellent. Well, well uh, Gabrielle, thanks very much for dropping by and all the best. Yeah. And many thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Oxford Research Group is closing at the end of the year. The Remote Warfare Programme has moved to Safer World under the new name of the Security Policy Change Programme. In the new year, this podcast will also be taken over by Safer World. But for now, you can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge on the ORG site by following the link at the top of the page. To all our listeners, we wish you a fond farewell from ORG. Goodbye.